So I have one more question, and it's kind of loaded. Um, uh Hello and welcome to episode 4 of the Queer Core Podcast. I'm your host, August Bernadiku, a 26-year-old gay historian. This podcast celebrates the oral histories I've collected from LGBTQ activists over the past 13 years. If you guys haven't already, please follow us on Instagram at QueerCorePod and give some love to our elders and their stories by sharing this podcast with all your fellow queers and allies. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Our last episode featured super activist Dr. Donald Kilhefner, who co-founded the Los Angeles LGBT Center in the Radical Fairies. In my conversations with Dr. Don, he suggested that I interviewed his friend, the subject of this episode, Jewel Thais Williams. Jewel Thais Williams founded the Catch One in 1973 which has since become the longest-running gay black discotheque in America. I was looking just to have a nice place where we could go and be comfortable and not have any determination as to whether it was gay or straight or whatever, just everybody. Growing up in a world that always told her no, Jewel never took that for the only answer, and for nearly 50 years, she has nourished the community that she helped create. In 1987, Jewel co-founded the Minority AIDS Project, which helps blacks and Hispanics affected by the disorder. Every day we would have food because there were people that this was the only meal that they got. Seeing the worst of AIDS, she decided she needed to help her community further by founding with her wife, Rue's House, the first housing facility for minority women with AIDS and their children. At 81 years old, Jewel still volunteers at the Village Health Foundation, another nonprofit she founded. There's a universal plan for everybody's presence here on this planet. Before we hit the club, I'd like to take a moment to thank our partner, Five Burrows Brewing Company, who have recently brought back their United by Beer, an all-inclusive beer with all proceeds going to the LGBTQ community. Jewel has never stopped dancing, so let's grab our dancing shoes and try to keep up. My first interview with Jewel happened just a few weeks after the murder of George Floyd. It was a surreal experience, speaking to an 81-year-old woman who had spent her entire life doing things the white supremacist culture and the power structure said she couldn't do. And yet, here we are, 47 years after she opened the most successful black queer disco in the country, still dealing with violent systemic racism. What happened with George Floyd, I hope and pray that the catalyst to the next wave of change that will be long-lasting and finally being able to put a period on the treating of African-Americans as second-class citizens in this country. We're still enslaved, and every time someone brings up reparations for us, we're poo-pooed, and it's like, oh, they don't deserve anything. You know, we've only been uh, using them, riding their backs, uh, 
come. I might not be there, but I'm going to the top of the mountain. So this thing with this George Floyd feels like we might be getting a little closer to the mountain. To see the adversity and violence that black people in America face today, one can only imagine what it was like for a black lesbian born into poverty in segregated America. Jules' family was originally from Arkansas, and in search of employment and educational opportunities for their family, they relocated to Gary, Indiana, where Jewel was born. Jewel was raised to be a worker, to never take anything for granted. Even if she was homesick from school, she would have to do chores. While this is devastating news to any kid, it instilled in her a work ethic that ultimately allowed her to become a mover and shaker in central LA and beyond. It was embedded in, in all my brothers and sisters as children. My parents worked hard. You know, they didn't believe in, in, in leisure time. My roots are in folks that, that picked cotton, you know, and didn't uh, have a day off. My mother's mother had, she had a total of 11 kids, but you know, when they were born, she was picking cotton out in the cotton field, and when the baby was born out in the cotton field, somebody cut the umbilical cord and took the baby through the house and waited for my grandmother to come out the field and do the nursing. It's a funny thing when you realize that you are just you. I need time to find my mind, find my place, and flourish. Despite having several intimate and emotional encounters with other women, Jewel did not realize that she was a lesbian until her mid-20s. There was no big coming out party for me. I lived closeted, you know, pretended dad. She met her first same-sex partner when she was working as a clerk at a Safeway supermarket in Los Angeles. And like so many queers of her generation, coming out as gay was difficult, painful, shameful, and awkward. It took Jewel 11 years to become comfortable with her sexuality and herself. My first lover cleared up what I needed to, to know about being gay, but you know, just knowing in my head did not change my heart at that time. You know, it, it was a process, of course, and something that I had not envisioned myself to be, even though I was a big time tomboy. Jobs for African American women in the 1960s and 70s were relegated mainly to the service industry, housekeeping, dishwashing, and other behind the scenes labor. A few coveted positions in retail existed, but not for dark-skinned tomboys like Jewel. If you were the one of the browner people, then you, there was things that you couldn't do, couldn't jobs that you didn't even think about applying for. The darker-skinned, for instance, couldn't work out where the public would see them. This is 
Jewell knew that in America in the 1970s, less than 10 years after the Civil Rights Act had passed, no one was going to offer her any opportunities. The only way for her to move forward in the world was for her to be her own boss and own her own business. While working at a small market on West Pico Boulevard, Jewel would look across the street and see Diana's Club, a bar that had once hosted jazz greats. By the 1970s, Diana's Club was a sleepy, run-down shadow of its former glory. I went and checked it out. Actually, I went past it to check out someplace else, and then drove by looking to see if there was a for sale sign. And it wasn't, but when I got back to my dress shop, I, I did what I did. Most evenings after I've gone out checking on places, open up the business opportunity section of the uh, LA Times, and there it was. Everything of substance that endures doesn't take off overnight. Getting the money she needed to buy Diana's clubs seemed like an impossible task, but similar to scrubbing the floors on a sick day as a child, Jewel worked because she had to. No sick days ever. Jewel put a down payment of $1,000 on Diana's Club with an agreement to pay the remaining $18,000 in two months. Even the public services that existed for small business owners initially rejected her. So why do you think your SBA got denied? Oh, it was, it was again, about Agnes thing, but I, I got around that. My younger sister was married to a fellow that was the branch manager of a Wells Fargo or one of those banks like that. And he was able to get my SBA loan, too. I wouldn't have been able to do it without him. They call us monkeys when they be monkeys, too. Ain't no denying, cause what they see is what they do. They try to fight it, but they be crying while we shoot, shoot, baby, baby, shoot on you. In the early days, patrons of Diana's Club were white, working-class people who came to the bar for a happy hour respite. Needless to say, they weren't thrilled when a black woman took over their space. Even the original employees took an issue. The first day I took over the, the club, the bartender walked out. He couldn't work for a black person. And he been, um, within a week or two, came back and asked me for his job. Uh, and I gave it to him. Soon after she claimed her new home, the white clientele returned. Jewel's simple act of owning a business opened their minds and expanded their worldview. Soon, the neighborhood's large black population caught wind of the new black women-owned bar. From the beginning, I, I was looking just to have a nice place where we could go and be comfortable. And I knew that it would be um, predominantly, if not totally, black folk. Why did queer people start showing up? Uh, the word got out that uh, lesbians owned it. And eventually there was a fight between a couple of guys and that kind of put the brand on it for sure. Was the fight between a gay person and a straight person? Oh no, this was lovers. This was oh. two guys. Love, 
For years, the heart of the gay scene in Los Angeles has been in white West Hollywood. Even today, the 2019 U.S. Census notes that West Hollywood is 80.8% Caucasian and 3.6% Black or African American. Things weren't dissimilar in 1973, when Jewel took over Diana's Club, the seedling of the Catch One. Back in 1973, to keep away African Americans and other minorities, West Hollywood clubs would make minorities show numerous forms of identification, and often take it further by enforcing blatant, white-only rules. Initially, when I opened the club in, in the early 70s, the big club in West Hollywood wouldn't allow any people of color and nor women. While still not fully out in public, Jewel, like the rest of her queer black patrons, found a place where they could be their true selves without judgment or fear of violence. In 1975, Jewel purchased the rest of the building, including the large ballroom upstairs, and named it Catch One, a spin-off on the mainly male bargoers who would show up each night hoping to catch one of the other studs and take them home. Were you a good dancer? Are you a good dancer? I could dance, but I was extremely shy so a lot of people that came to the club just over the years didn't know that that i owned it you know i was either tending bar or working the door or mopping the floors or cleaning up spills whatever and i just kind of blended in there were the, those that were even wanted to say that at the club that i was just fighting off for the mafia and i let them think that whatever because it gave me a chance to kind of stay in the background still and to be scared by you a little bit too i guess uh yeah kind of as ridiculous as this may sound same-sex dancing was actually illegal in the early days of the catch but the wild, free, get-lost-in-your-own-world style of disco dancing gave men and women a chance to get down with their crushes without breaking the draconian laws that could have actually shut the club down. You know, folks were told that they couldn't touch each other and, and dance. So um, we kept the music pumping and that, so they could virtually dance by themselves. And if they were started to touch her or whatever, then we would just go over and politely ask them not to. Dancing laws aside, you can't open a black gay disco as a black lesbian and not expect a little attention from the police. I can predict the future. We gon' all die, but don't make me choose ya. My skin is black, sexuality is fuchsia. Sounds good. You know, on a Saturday night, there might be six cars, police cars, parked out in front, intimidating, trying to intimidate people from coming in, going. And it would be, of course, watching for anybody that, that came out that was uh, drunk, that was driving a car. But we always tried to check that. And, and in fact, we tried to, to follow all rules, regulations, norms to the tenth degree. Would you have felt comfortable calling the police, you know, if something bad would have happened? You know, uh, it was a song by Tracy Chapman, and one of the lines from her song is, uh, the police always come late if they come at all. And that's pretty much the way it was. We pretty much policed ourselves really well. 
I think. Jade Green. Prejudice towards Jewel and the Catch One expanded even to the fire department, who showed little interest in investigating a suspicious arson that nearly destroyed the club in 1985, closing it for a full two years. The fire department never came out to investigate after the fire. And why do you think the fire department didn't go? Oh, they wanted me out too. You know, it was like a black gay club in the 70s, early 70s. Forget it. Nobody wanted me there. Did that make you want to fight harder? Or, I mean, you've obviously been... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. No, it was... Uh, I always uh, had that, you know, in my soul that I will go when I get ready to go. Not before. As hundreds of black, gay, and trans people were finding their voice in the post-Stonewall world, their dream realized came to a grinding halt in the 1980s. In June of 1981, Pride Month, the first case of GRID, gay-related immune deficiency, later diagnosed as AIDS, was reported in the United States. It spread quickly, and by the next year, there were over 750 known cases and 618 deaths. One of my uh, bartenders, and, and he was a friend of mine too, he, um, he called me when he was on his way to have his test. He said, I'm going to get uh, tested, and he knew what the symptoms were, and uh, he got back by because of As the government finally began to take action against the AIDS epidemic, Jules saw that naturally black people and other minorities, who always struggled for equal access to healthcare, were again being left to die. Seeing yet another void that needed to be filled, in 1987, Jewel and Carl Bean, an openly gay minister who founded the Unity Fellowship of Christ Church, founded the Minority AIDS Project which provides an invaluable treatment and support to their community. I uh, was asked to be a member of the Board of Directors for APLA, and I said under one condition, the Minority Age Project had very little funding coming, so it was like, okay, I'll be on the board of APLA, but you've got to do something with and about the Minority Age Project and make your place more friendly for folks to come to get food and health services and stuff like that, more blacks to be able to come. It was very, very um, segregated to the community, was the gay amazement community in those days. It was during this time that Jewel met another woman who shared her spirit for charity and community work. T E M V T E D T M T E D I was. 
tempted. How did you meet Rue? And what was it love at first sight? Mm, I liked her <laughs> from first. From, the, from our first meeting, it was at Unity Fellowship Church. It was a, a meeting at the beach at Santa Monica at this Episcopal Church. And they were sending a bus to pick up some of the church members. And Rue was in charge of that. So that was kind of like our, our first unofficial date. And then, I don't know, we went to some place where it was going to be real late. So I asked her if she wanted to spend the night so she wouldn't have to drive so far out. And she could leave in the morning, whatever, and I'd sleep on the couch. Needless to say, I didn't sleep on the couch. And that was like 32 years ago. Well, I'm glad you didn't sleep on the couch. That's the perfect ending. <laughs> it's true. Jules' work with the Minority AIDS Project led her to see that there were many black women with AIDS who were struggling to take care of their children. In 1989, she co-founded Rue's House with her longtime partner, Rue Thais Williams, again paving the way for others. Rue's house was the first housing facility for women with AIDS and their children in the United States. Generally, the social workers are better than the charity site placements for the kids of, uh, of the women that had AIDS, especially after they got a little sick or if they became homeless or whatever. And so our idea that manifested was for these women to be able to keep their kids with them, some of which had AIDS also. Many of these women lived and died at Rue's house, but they did it with dignity and compassion. Through all this pain, the Catch One survived, and as the 80s turned into the 90s, it became one of the hottest clubs in Los Angeles. Despite its high attendance, Jewel told me that she didn't realize how big the club had become until she watched the documentary, Jewel's Catch One, which immortalized her life. She remembers an inclination she had when celebrities such as Sylvester, Whitney Houston, Luther Vandross, Janet Jackson, and even Madonna danced all night at the Catch One. Started off slow and it just kept going and going and going. The celebrities started coming, then they would do a drive from all over. They'd fly in from Europe and leave their bags. Maybe get the sighting, a Madonna sighting. But, ironically, when the bar was at the height of its success, Jewel found herself unchallenged, a dangerous state for someone so akin to hard work. Compounded on this was the never-ending party of the Catch One that surrounded her. Temptation was everywhere. I was getting bored, mostly bored, because prior to getting in the nightclub, I, I didn't stay on, on any job too long. But once I got to the club, there was no time for boredom until about 25 years after I started it. In the last episode of the Queer Core podcast, we featured Dr. Don Kilhefner. Dr. Don has dedicated the majority of his life to his therapy practice. 
Jewel was one of his patients, and she credits Dr. Don to guiding her into a new way to help others. I told him I needed to put something else on my plate, so he suggested, because he had a patient that was attending acupuncture school, that I check it out. But it took me about a year to make up my mind to do that. While she still owned the Catch One, Jewel embarked on her next challenge. In 1988, she went back to school and got her master's degree in oriental medicine. I was overweight from the time I was like nine or 10 years old. And so I was always reading the health magazines and the fitness ones. And I tried every diet that came out. In this process, I had you know, learned quite a bit about herbs and nutrition and all that kind of stuff. Minority communities have always been susceptible to the worst of the majority, whether it is as broad as opportunity or as specific as equal access to healthcare. With the current coronavirus pandemic, approximately one in four deaths are among blacks. Even though blacks only account for 13% of the population, it's hard to imagine the disparity that existed as recently as 2001 when Jewel founded the Village Health Foundation, an alternative clinic which offered non-toxic treatments for people living with ailments that they could not treat with Western medicine. And I saw this, uh, I think it was a 2020 program, one of those magazine type things, where they asked five or six doctors if they treated black people differently, and each one of them said yes. Since its inception, it is expanded to provide affordable, accessible, and culturally competent healthcare treatment with services provided in English, Spanish, Chinese, and Korean. When Jewel dives into a project, she doesn't see color, culture, or creed. She needs to help all, not herself, not one, not a few, but all. Throughout the past 13 years of interviews and research that I have done, I have come to realize that the people who created lasting change have never maintained a selfish ego. Rather, they continue to work because they don't think that their accomplishments are enough. There is something in them that moves, moves, moves. Do you ever think that you created a community? Um, not specifically, no. It was just that this needs to be done, that needs to be done. And this guy is sleeping on the bench across the street, and he's different than having fun, some place to stay. So it was just, you know, being available and, and realizing how fortunate I was to have been in a position to, to do these things. I guess you gotta get done before you live yourself up. Yeah, you will lift yourself back up again. Yeah, I guess we gotta get down. Today, Jewel is still a major figure in Los Angeles and beyond. Pico Boulevard and Norton Avenue in front of the Catch One has been named in her honor. At 81 years old, Jewel hasn't slowed down. While Jewel sold the Catch One in 2015, she still volunteers part-time at the Village Health Clinic. Whatever needs to be done, and wherever she is needed, Jewel just works. Now, as an elder, she realizes in a different way 
that her work has paid dividends. If you could give advice to a downtrodden queer person, what would your advice be? Everybody start with learning to love yourself. You know, look in the mirror every day and say, I love you just like you are. There's a universal plan for everybody's presence here on this planet. How did I happen to go to this place? Why did that idea come into mind? Why did my brother say, why don't you get a liquor store? Because he had a couple of them. I said, no, no why did I think? because that's not a bad person. I just think that everything is according to plan. The important part is just being, being willing to carry out whatever your mission is. Look at the naked face, the ultimate original you can It's what you thought you lost, but you can still embrace. Just... That's it, everyone. Episode four of the Queer Core podcast. I'm your host, August, and I want to thank all of you and our partner, Five Burrows Brewing Company. Our next episode features Augusto Machado, Tony Zanetta, and Ruby Lynn Rayner, stars of the theater of the ridiculous, the theater genre that smashed the system and kickstarted gay liberation. The Queer Core podcast is produced by Chris Coates and myself and edited by Chris Coates. Our theme song, Silicon Valley, is by Silka Berlin and The Addictions. The songs We Are the Children, White Noise, and Mirror are performed and written by Keenan Lonsdale. The song Fuchsia is performed and written by Ted Jewell. Thank you, thank you, thank you everyone for listening. Please share and tag us with the hashtag QueerCorePodcast. Peace out. Peace out.